Do you like me? Uh, am I okay? Am I normal? Is there something wrong with me? Do I need to, to change so, so you like me? Today we're talking about everybody's normal until you get to know them. But I'm trying to get at it from a different direction. Because sometimes we think about it in terms of, well, there's normal, and then there's not so normal, and other layers of not so normal to being dysfunctional. But I think maybe there's a whole different side to this. And I think John Ortberg in his book was trying to show us a whole different side to this. And God's kind of hinted to me this week that there's a whole different side to this. And that's really what I want to teach you this morning. And probably I could put everything I want to teach you this morning into 30 seconds. But I'm going to take 30 minutes. (laughs) And then at the end, I'm going to tell you the 30 seconds. So, So be ready for that. Let's get started. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm normal, but you're probably not. (laughs) Kind of makes you feel better, doesn't it? That's the way we kind of see things. Hey, we've had an interesting week at the Simone household. Our, uh, Our grandchildren moved in for the week. They brought their mom and dad with them to have a a week at the beach, so we added five people to our household. The dogs went on a hunger strike. They just haven't eaten for days. They kind of don't know where they are, who they are, what happened to the little cushy system where they were in charge and we were their servants. That kind of went went down the road for a while. But we had an interesting week, and, uh, and one of my favorite parts of the week was Wednesday night. It was movie night with Grandpa. I got to be the, uh, the guy that stayed home with the, with the girls, and we were going to watch The Sound of Music, and I was kind of excited because I never got to watch the entire Sound of Music movie before. I, I've heard so much about it. Uh, so we camped out there on the bed with Bodie and Wilson, uh, with Olivia and Sophia, and I, I sat there in the chair watching this movie. And by the end of the movie, I realized how, how crazy all those people were in The Sound of Music. It's just crazy. You know, it starts out, the hills are alive with the sound of music. How do you solve a problem like Maria? I am 16 going on 17. If that isn't a dumb song, I don't know what is. (laughs) Edelweiss. They're singing to plants. And, and you got this guy that blows a whistle, and everybody has a, a sound on his whistle so that it, they know that's, that's their, their summons. They're summoned by a certain whistle call. And the kids all run and get in line like it's the military. And Julie Andrews, she couldn't find the Alps if she was sitting on top of it. You know, and it's just this whole, she's making clothes out of drapes in a room that she says nobody wants. She's sort of this self-deluded nanny kind of person who's not sure if she should become a nun or not become a nun. And so this whole thing, and, and I, I, get, I get to the end of it, and it, it's crazy at the end because, they, of course, they, they fall in love, and then they, they get married, and he was going to marry somebody else, and then he marries her, and, and then they look at each other at the end, and she goes, I knew... I first loved you, loved you when you blew your whistle, which was just a bunch of poop. It just. <laughs> and then, I'm not sure why I said that, but, and, and, then, and then he looks at her and, and he says, I knew I first loved you 
when you sat on that pine cone at dinner. Which, what are you talking about? So I watched this whole thing with my granddaughters, and I realized that I've just taught them the ABCs of dysfunctional family living. You know, and it's probably corrupted them for the, for the rest of their lives. You know, what, what is normal? How do you know if you're normal or you're not normal? The older I get, the more I realize how normal I am not. I'm just not a normal person. The other day, I had a moment that I've been waiting for for a long time. This moment taught me about how not so normal I am. But it was this moment, because I used to religiously watch the TV show Lost. Anybody else watch the TV show Lost religiously? I mean, I'd go home that weeknight that it was on, and I would sit down there, and I'd take in every single minute. He didn't know what was going to happen next, if the island was going to be there, if it wasn't going to be there. And there were all these great characters. There was Jack. There was, who comes after Jack? There was Kate, and she was very confusing and not so normal. And, and, there, was, and there was Sawyer, and he was like sort of a conniving guy. And he just had to love Hurley, he was just this big, lovable, chubby guy. And, and, and so there was the smoke monster. And every time the smoke monster came, I'd be, oh, what's the smoke monster? Who is the smoke monster? How do you get rid of the smoke monster? But maybe the guy that pulled it all together for me was the guy who played John Locke. John Locke, because sometimes he was dead, and sometimes he wasn't dead, and sometimes he could walk, and sometimes he'd be in a wheelchair, and you just never knew where he was going to show up and when he was going to show up, and the backstory of his life life was so important. So the other night, when we went out for a quick dinner, and I looked down down at another table, and I saw him in the restaurant right here in Virginia Beach, I freaked out. (laughs) I didn't know if he was dead, if he was alive if he was there or if he wasn't there. And I am losing it because I was like the, one of the biggest lost fans on the planet. And so I'm saying, I'm going to take his picture. And Gail says, no, you can't take his picture. And I said, yeah, I have to take his picture. And I tried to do sort of a, a I'm taking a selfie, but I'm really taking him. And, and, and that, wasn't, that wasn't working. And so finally she goes, I'll take the picture. So she may believe she was taking my picture and she took his picture. And it was just so amazing. And I thought, I've got to get close to him. I've got to make a connection with him. This isn't, I know this isn't normal, but I have to do it. So, so he was leaving the restaurant. He came right by me. And I saw him go out the front door. So I chased him down. <laughs> I caught him at the, at the edge of the curb. I said, Mr. O'Quinn. And he turned around and he faced me. And there I was with John Locke from the TV show Lost, and I looked around for the smoke monster, but the, the smoke monster wasn't there. And, and in that moment, you just don't know what you're going to do. And I just, I didn't know what I was going to say. And I just looked at him, and I said, I love you. <laughs> it was so not normal. I said, I love you. I love the show. I, I wish you had more episodes of the show. And I just started to babble and, and, and go crazy. And he just looked at me. He had sunglasses on. He took his sunglasses off and he looked at me and I just was still. <laughs> and he said, I'm glad you love the show. And he walked away. He didn't like me. <laughs> he rejected me. I feel so rejected. My self-esteem just plummeted to the depths of the toes of my shoes. What was I ever going to do with the rest of my life? This is how not normal I am. But we all struggle with this. 
But I think normal has a whole other side. And I want to teach you that whole other side to normal today. And if you get this, if you really get this, it can change everything for the rest of your life. Let me tell you a story. Mark chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was on the, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was about 70 miles from Nazareth. There were about 1,500 people who lived there who said, this is, this is my home. I live in Capernaum. And Peter, the apostle Peter, lived there. He had a home there. And this place became like a base of operations for Jesus and the disciples. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Now, people had been hearing a lot of stories about Jesus. They had been hearing about miracles, and they had been hearing about confrontations, and they had been hearing about all the, the political flap that was, that was going on, and, and they really wanted to reconnect with him. He's coming home. We want to see him. We want to connect with him. And so it says, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. So he goes into this, this house. It's probably Peter's house. A typical house at that time was one big room. It had a flat roof. The roof was made out of, out of mud and, and thatch. And, uh, and there was maybe a stairway on the side in case you had to go up and do some repair work on the roof. But it wasn't fancy. It wasn't, it wasn't anything like we know today as a, as a home. But people were jammed in there. He was probably sitting down on the floor. Maybe he was on a, a small bench. And it was so packed that you couldn't even get in the door. People were outside. People were peeking through windows. Hundreds of people were probably in this vicinity. Maybe, maybe a third of the town or half the town. Maybe the whole town came out for this. You couldn't get in. Even if you had a ticket, there was no way you're getting in. And he's in there preaching the word to them. What he's actually doing is he's explaining God to them. He's explaining the relationship that we have with God. So you have God himself teaching about how you have a relationship with him, how you come to him, what that relationship means, and that he wants you to love him with all your heart and with all your soul. And that's the normal way to live, to just love him fully in a deep way. Some men came. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. So these guys get up that morning and they say, this is our chance. This is great. You know, we, we love our friend here who can't walk. We love our friend who isn't paralyzed. Let's bring him. We heard all the stories. Let's bring him to Jesus. There's a great possibility, a great chance that Jesus will heal him and he will walk again. Let's get him there. So they show up. They can't get close. They can't get close. But one of the guys starts to look around. One of the guys starts to think. He sees the stairway to the roof. He thinks about it. And he goes, I think we can pull this off. I think we can get this done. And he calls a, a little huddle together, and he says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go up the stairs. We're going to break through the roof. We're going to lower them down. And they're like, are you kidding me? No, we can, we can do this. We can do this. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus 
by digging through it and then lowered the mat, lowered the mat the man was lying on. And so here's the guy on the mat, right? And all of a sudden, they're starting to carry him up the stairs. He's at a 45-degree angle. He's going, guys, 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 I already can't walk. This is not a wide staircase. There was no OSHA to say the staircases have to be this wide. And, and, and so it's sort of like shaky and four guys and the guy in the mat. And he's going, I don't want to fall off the roof. I'm already in a place where I can, I'm in pain and I can't walk. And now I fall off the roof and it's going to be worse for me for the rest of my life. This is not such a good idea. And somebody else is going, let's come back another day. And they're like, no, no, we've got to get this done. Let's just do this. So they carefully get up there. They get on the roof. They start breaking through. Now the people underneath, they're just listening to Jesus talk about God. They start feeling like dirt and straw come down on them. And they look up and all of a sudden a light is breaking through. And Jesus looks up and there's this hole that starts to open up. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and wider and wider. Imagine how, how big the hole had to be to lower a guy on a stretcher through. Now they've got to lower the guy down. Everybody is, is silent for a moment. All eyes are on this stretcher that's coming down from the roof carefully, slowly, and he lands right there in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, so interesting that Mark writes it that way. Jesus saw faith. How did he see faith? Faith is invisible. Faith is something that happens on the inside. But here's the thing about faith. What happens internally has to be externalized at some point. That's how you know it's faith. It says in Hebrews that without faith it's impossible to please God. For he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. So Jesus is teaching about this. And it says he saw their faith. He saw the expression of their faith by what they had done. And so now, everybody's quiet, everybody's watching, and everybody's looking at Jesus, and he says what nobody expects him to say. Son, your sins are forgiven. Whoa, he can't say that. Only God can say that. And everybody knows only God can say that. So when he says that, he makes himself out to be God. He puts himself in the place of God. He's kind of saying, get a clue here, guys. I am who I said I am. I will always be. I have always been. And it's really too much for them to take in or understand. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? Why is he saying this? Why does he put himself, why does he jeopardize himself? He's blaspheming. He's the one who's sinning. How's he forgiving sins? He's sinning by just saying that. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, that's the whole point. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. So he read their minds and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Why do you think like that? You're so caught up in the fact that you think you're the experts on God that when God is in front of you, you don't even recognize him. Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man. Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, 
get up, take your mat, and walk. And so their little wheels are turning, and, and somebody says, I think that's a trick question. I'm not touching that. And, and so they're, they're not really saying anything. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. It's a flat-out statement of divinity. It's a flat-out statement of, remember the burning bush? Talking to Moses? That's me, but I'm not in a burning bush anymore. I'm right here with you. I look like you, and you look like me. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This guy comes in on a stretcher lowered from the ceiling. He can't walk. At the end of the story, he rolls up his bed, puts it under his arm, walks out, the crowd just opens up like the parting of the Red Sea. He walks away and they go, we've never seen it. What just happened here? And let me tell you something. Unless you, you get a view of Jesus in your lifetime where you go, he is amazing. Unless you get a, a view of Jesus in your lifetime where you realize he can do whatever he wants to do in you and through you, unless you get a, a view of Jesus where you are in awe of him as God come into the world, you'll never get to the place you need to be as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not just check off the boxes. It's not just Sunday school. It's the invasion of God into your heart when you invite him to come in and it profoundly changes the way you think about life, the way you think about yourself. It shifts the whole concept of normal. It shifts it. Because we kind of think of normal as the baseline, and then we kind of go, well, that's less than normal, and that's less than less than normal, and that's dysfunctional. And God says, no, 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 no. What's, what's normal is when you are in awe of who I am, and what I can do in your life. And you believe that so deeply that it changes everything. John Orberg wrote a book called Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. And, and I used to think the book was about defining what's normal and defining what's not normal. And I realized in reading it this time that it's so much more. It's about taking us far beyond normal to what God defines as normal. And that's what I want to, to teach you this morning in what I call four segments about being normal. Normal part one. Orberg writes, Every human being you know is making a request of their friends, though it usually goes unspoken. Here's what they ask. Motivate me. Call out the best in me. Believe in me. Encourage me when I'm tempted to quit. Speak truth to me and remind me of my deepest values. Help me achieve my greatest potential. Tell me again what God called me to be, what I might yet become. 
he continues, you have no idea what it means to be the people when you respond to this need. The truth is, often people just get beaten down in life, beaten down by failures, beaten down by their jobs, beaten down by their families, beaten down by their disappointments, beaten down by voices inside themselves. And then he says, everyone we know needs someone who believes, someone who will remind them this could be your finest hour. This could be your finest hour. Normal part two. He talks about this story in in Mark 2. It's also recorded in Luke 5. And he says something very interesting that shifted my whole thinking about being normal. He says, community gets built by servants. Community gets built by servants. You need people who have a heart to serve. It's, it's a baseline, but it's got to go to another level. He says, great community gets built by roof crashers. Great community gets built by roof crashers. Those guys that went up on the roof, they changed everything. They shifted the paradigm. If they didn't get up there on the roof, Jesus wouldn't have had the opportunity that he had to teach something that was so important for him to teach. Roof crashing is what is normal in the Christian life. Roof crashing is what we have to understand if we're going to live the Christian life. Ortberg quotes a psychologist who defined the concept we call family in this way. Family is a group which possesses and implements an irrational commitment to the well-being of its members. The key word is irrational. A group which possesses, owns, and implements, puts into motion an irrational commitment to the well-being of its members. It's not something you can quantify. It's not something you can always logically figure out. It just says, I'll always be there for you. No matter what happens, you can count on me. I'll show up. I'll stand by your side. When everybody walks away from you, I won't walk away from you. And so this idea of of an irrational commitment that changes everything, you marry that with roof crashing. You begin to understand what normal is. Ortberg writes, here's the truth about us. Everybody has a mat. Let the mat stand as a picture of human brokenness and imperfection. It is what is not normal about me. It's I'm a human being, and there are places and times in the present, there are places and times in the past when my life has just been broken. And and some of that I participated in. Some of it I didn't. Some of it happened to me, and I didn't want it to happen to me. But some of it I sow the seeds for it. And that's my mat. He says, but it is only when we allow others to see our mat, when we give and receive help with each other, the healing becomes possible. Because everybody has a mat. Let me make a statement and ask a question. The statement is, if everybody has a mat, or everybody has a mat, let's pose that. The question is, Who carries your mat for you sometimes? Who carries your mat 
for you sometimes. Because not only are we the friends who carry their friend to the roof, but sometimes we're the friend on the mat and we need to be carried by others. And so my, my simple thesis this morning relates to what it means to be a church, and here it is. Church has to be more than a community of servants. It has to be a weekly convention of roof crashers that irrationally take care of each other and the world. Let me say it one more time. This is the 30 seconds that I'm trying to to teach you today. Church has to be more than a community of servants. It has to be a weekly convention of roof crashers that irrationally take care of each other and the world. You see, John's book is not about defining a baseline of what's normal and then looking at everything that isn't normal. It's about taking us to a whole new level of normal. In his book, he writes, How to Get Close Without Getting Hurt, Unveiled Faces, Authenticity, Put Down Your Stones, Acceptance, The Art of Reading People, Empathy, Community is Worth Fighting For, Conflict, the gift nobody wants, confrontation. See, he's down to the, to the guts of what it means to be a Christian. He's down to the roof-crashing realities of what it takes to make a difference in this world, to have your life put a dent in the world, to let your life be transformed in a whole new way because you decide to see Jesus and hear him and understand who he is and who he was and who he will always be. And you're ready for him to give you a roof-crashing assignment, maybe for the first time. Normal part three. This takes us into things that I hear all the time. People complain about the church. They complain about it because they haven't experienced it as a weekly convention of roof crashers irrationally taking care of each other in the world. So when they complain about the church, they say things like, and I've said things like this too in my lifetime, the church is boring. It's an indictment. And sometimes the church has been boring and and was boring and is boring. And the church should be the last place that is boring. We got all those kids down there learning about God and faith and life and Jesus. It shouldn't be boring. It should not be boring. And it shouldn't be boring in here either because we're all just kind of big kids growing up and we want to know the real truth and the real stories and want them to touch our hearts. So the complaint about being boring, I think, is, is well taken. But then they say, well, the church is judgmental. And that's sad because if people just point fingers at each other and judge each other, and if that's happened to you, then you don't want to come back to a place like this. I had a a woman tell me a story just yesterday about a moment in her life happened over a decade ago where somebody pointed his finger, a church leader pointed his finger at her and judged her. And she said, I have never been back since then. That's just sad. We get the, the criticism, the complaint. Church is full of hypocrites. That is just so much baloney. 
life is full of hypocrites. People who, who say one thing and do another thing, who say they're like this and they're really not like that, who, who say they're going to show up and they don't show up, who tell you what the deal is and it's not, it's not the deal. It's just, it's just the, the great sin of humanity that we misrepresent ourselves and we misrepresent things. And so you can't just throw that at the church. It's, it's everywhere in the world. It's in the political arena. It's in the sports world. It's in the educational world. It's, it's everywhere. It's in, the, it's in the military. It's everywhere. Ah, the church asks for money all the time. Asks for money all the time. You know, Harvard did a study on this, and it was not that people didn't want to give money, but they wanted to give it to something that was making a difference. They wanted to know that their giving made a difference. I know people want to give because I see this thing out in the world called Kickstarter. You know what Kickstarter is? You have an idea and you put it out there and you say, I want to do this thing and I'm calling it Whiz Bang Wow Amonga. And Whiz Bang Wow Amonga is going to take me $12,000 to get it done and deliver it to the market. Then I think we're going to make millions of dollars with this or we're going to do something creative in a nonprofit arena. But I just need your help to get this $12,000 for, for whiz, bang, wow, among us, and I have 30 days to do it. And on Kickstarter, they keep track of it, and people from all over the world give to stuff that they feel a heart connection to. And people just want to do that. And so it's the church's job to say, this is what you're giving your, your, your investment to. This is the life that you're changing. This is what you're doing. When you give, we change so many things. That's what people want. It's when we don't do that that people complain about the asks for money. Ah, oh, the church doesn't meet my needs. The church doesn't meet my needs. Let me tell you when the church will meet your needs. It's when you understand what it means to be a roof-crashing, irrational follower of Jesus Christ. Because as I said last week, it's really not about you. People think it's about, you know, make me feel better and, and somehow, you know, give me food and, and help me to eat it. My, my, my almost two-year-old granddaughter yesterday, I was sitting right next to her, and she was trying to eat pancakes. And she's not even two years old. And she's got a real fork in her hand, which is a dangerous weapon. And I'm sitting right next to her. I could get stabbed any second. If she sneezes, bam, I get impaled with a fork. So I'm watching this whole thing very carefully. And she's trying to get a, a piece of the pancake. And sometimes she gets a crumb of the pancake. And she pitifully takes this crumb of the pancake and puts it in her mouth. And then she tries it again. So finally, I, I just gently held her little chubby hand and I, I speared a big piece of pancake and she put it in her mouth her eyes just went wide open. I helped her to feed herself. She's not yet two. If she was 16, I would have a big problem in my life. Right? If she was 16 and she let me do it, she would have a big problem in her life because at some point in your life, you have to self-feed. And the job of the church is not to feed you. The job of the church is to provide enough food that you can feed yourself. And so learn how to do that. Learn how to study. Learn how to be involved in a small group. Learn how to take a class. Engage with the process of what God is doing in your life and feed yourself and your life will change and you'll be different than you ever were before. But if all you do is complain and whine and quack about all the things that are wrong and you're not getting fed and nobody's helping you to grow, I say to you, 
poop. I just can't think of any other word today. I say, get out. Just leave me alone. I want to just punch you and walk away. And you say, you're a Christian. You can't punch me and walk away. I can because I'm a sinner and I can do that. And I will say, Jesus will pick you up and carry you and comfort you, but not me. And it might just be that Jesus picks you up and says, did Michael punch you? And you say, yes. He says, well, I'm going to knock you down too. Because you have to learn how to feed yourself. And then I always get, I can worship God and not go to church, can't I? Well, yeah, but I don't see what sense that is, and it's not biblical. The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. It's a whole movement of people who are roof crashing and irrationally take care, taking care of themselves in the world. It's, it's always been the, before the 20th and 21st century, everybody knew it took all of us to survive. So I, I just can't go anywhere with that worship God on your own and not go to church thing. Here's what the real church is. The real church is creative and relevant. It's teaching that speaks right into the heart of your everyday experience. It's forgiving and grace-based. It says, okay, you fell down. Okay, that happened. Okay, let's walk with you in this. Let's irrationally take care of you in this. It's full of humble growers, humble growers who are irrational, who are roof-crashing people. It invests in ministry and mission that changes lives. If we're going to change those lives, I want to invest. I want to be there. It meets you where you are to take you where you need to go. That's real church. And you don't always know where you need to go. The greatest moments in my life following God have been when God took me where I needed to go and I didn't know I needed to go there. And sometimes he dragged me and sometimes he just said, there's the door. But it was always, I didn't need to know, but he knew. The real church helps you connect to God and others through roof-crashing experiences. So here's what it comes down to, this whole normal thing. Everybody's normal until you get to know them means until you find out if someone is a roof-crasher or not. Because if we're a roof-crasher, we look different. And if we're not, we all just look the same. So the choice becomes... Do you want to live sort of a, an average, mediocre kind of life that, that Jesus said, no, don't do that? Or do you want to just crash some roofs and be irrational and, and change the world? That's what's normal. What's normal is going above and beyond to the places that God wants to take us. Finally, normal part four. In Revelation, it says, chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And Jesus is there, and maybe he's there right now, in the door of your life, and he's saying, Look, I'm knocking. Do you hear me? I'm knocking. Do you want me to come in? And that's a lot of what this baptism Sunday is about. It's a lot of why these towels are out here, because maybe he's knocking on your life today. Maybe he's saying, Let's do this. Be a roof crasher. Be irrational. Let me change the world inside of you and change the world outside of you. And we try to think of it as adults, and sometimes we can't always understand and get it. There's something uniquely 
brash and spiritual about the way a child thinks about these things. So I want to tell you Pepper's story, because this just happened at my house the other night at about 10.30 p.m. Pepper here, he had told a lie before, and, the, and he has sinned before. He'd stolen something, he'd lied, he said something unkind, he bragged, but he'd bragged. Now, he, he'd, he'd bragged, he'd lied, he'd stealed, he'd sinned. Now, 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 as I drop Pepper into the baptizing thing, wrapped up in sin, when he comes out, he won't be wrapped up in sin. Now, Pepper, I baptize him in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, he, the sin paper, he has gotten the sin paper off of him, and, and the sin paper has Totally unscripted. We are just not normal at my house. This is what's going on 10:30 at night, you know, while I'm watching ESPN. Uh, so, is this that moment for you? Is this that moment for you when you go, "I hear him. I want to know him. I want everything inside of me wants a roof-crashing, irrational, world-changing life." I'm ready to take that step. I'm ready to, to believe in a whole new way about the one who loved me so much that he gave his life for me. And at the end of the day, believing in him is the only normal you ever need to be. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for a moment like this when we realize that great community gets built by roof crashing followers of your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, guide us into this day as an opportunity to see our lives be changed. Guide us into these moments where we understand that, that normal is not a baseline. It's, it's something so far above and beyond what we would usually choose to become or, or even entertain for our lives. Father, allow us to see you and to hear you and to know you deeply, to follow you with everything that's within us. Father, call us now to that roof-crashing life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.